This is Chapter 31 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. As we get ready to mark the 16th anniversary of the September 11th attacks, we feature two books on the World Trade Center this week. The first chronicles the discovery and 13-year journey of a cross found in the rubble. The second is a novel that introduces us to the real-life woman who dreamed up the Twin Towers. And we wrap up with a preview of the upcoming Brooklyn Book Festival. In the Ground Zero Cross, Father Brian Jordan details the cross's origins and the 13 years it took to shepherd it from its discovery in the rubble to its installation in the National September 11th Memorial and Museum in Lower Manhattan. He told the incredible story to our Peter Haskell. Let's start from the beginning. What is the Ground Zero Cross? Uh, Back on September 23rd, 2001, in the aftermath of the terrible tragedy of September 11, 2001, after I uh, was given communion to a number of uh, construction workers, police officers, fire, firefighters, I was invited by a union construction worker to follow him to World Trade Center 6, and he asked me to look inside, and I was sort of curious why, and I looked inside, I found what I interpret and believe to be a sign from God. It was uh, a cross-like beam uh, that fell within the ruins of World Trade Center 6, was on a 20-degree angle to the right, and on the left side was a piece of insulation which uh, resembled that of the Shroud of Turin. But it was so prominent the way it was, uh, I was just overwhelmed with emotion, uh, with joy, and complete surprise on this matter. And I said, wow, this God never abandoned us. So I understood what uh, Frank Seleccia, the workers, meant, and within minutes, two firefighters entered the, the area, we made eye contact with each other. They, they, they knelt down in prayer as I did, and they realized what that was as well. We interpret this to be a cross, a sign from God, that the God never abandoned us at ground zero. The cross is now in the 9-11 Museum. There was a long, torturous path to get that. We'll talk about that. But you know what struck me? You write about God's house, and that's the area where the cross was found. And the first thought is... How does God allow this to happen on 9-11? I'm curious how frequently you heard that question, and how do you answer that? Well, for the first two weeks from uh, September 11th towards the end of September, uh, I do not not exaggerate, at least 500 occasions, people ask me, why did God allow this to happen? And my answer to all of them is the same answer I'll be giving. God never intended this to happen. This was the abuse of free will by 19 uh, misguided, tormented men. They abused the Quran, they abused the, the great uh, religion of uh, Islam, and they abused their free will to take down those uh, two planes which entered into the towers. And I do not uh, fault God for this. God gives us free will, and it's up for humanity of free will. But God didn't abandon us. He had to, gave us that sign. And God gave us the strong resolve for our nation to unite with one another to help each other out. So this cross is found at what was Sixth World Trade. What role did that play? An immense role that no one even uh, planned had occurred. Uh, as soon as I found the, uh, the cross on the next day, September 24th, I called First Deputy uh, Mayor Joseph Loder, who's presently the president of the uh, MTA, and he was really the go-to guy in the Julian administration 
I told him about the cross. He instructed me to deal with the uh, the, the leaders up there, um, the, representing the mayor of the office, Ken Holden of the Department of DDC. And we planned for October 4th, 2001, uh, when about 10 days later, to have an official blessing of the Ground Zero Cross. The reason why we chose October 4th is uh, October 4th is the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi, the founder of my order, but he's also the patron saint of ecology. This is sacred ground when nearly 3,000 people died, and we're going to bless the cross on that sacred ground. Tell us about that mass and the blessing. The blessing was we had a representative from the New York City police officers, the Port Authority, uh, FDNY, construction workers, also with Frank Seletcher, the union construction worker who found the cross, and with the assistance of uh, NYPD and the and the uh, union construction workers, operating engineers, whatever, we have over 400 people. We, we blessed the cross in four directions, from the north, the south, the east, and the west. See that God's directions of love is with us there on that sacred ground. And at the end, uh, I yelled out, God bless America, and the operating engineers tuned the horns from all the, the trucks, uh, from all the other matters we had, and we all yelled out, God bless America. It was a wonderful, cathartic day. You describe that in the book as very emotionally cathartic. What was it about it? We were asking ourselves, we were trying to find meaning and purpose since that time, from September 11th to October 4th, why did this happen? And I keep on telling, I don't believe God never, God does not destroy what God, what God creates. Uh, this was a man-made uh, diabolical attack, and, uh, but we of humanity, it's incumbent upon us to remove this evil force let the goodness of God's love be there. So catharsis is that even though we've seen evil at its worst, we saw goodness at its best, and we saw goodness triumph over evil on the day of the blessing, October 4th, 2001. One of the things you mentioned in the book about this blessing was the bagpipes. What, what was that all about? The bagpipers, uh, which for the uh, New York City Police Department, the uh, FDNY, uh, Port Authority Police, they played at many funerals for many of their, uh, their fallen uh, colleagues. And uh, that was for the matter of, you know, for the death, you know, thing, going home is a, a favorite uh, Bad Pike song. And for us, we were, we were in reverse, we were coming home. We were retaken ground zero. It might have been taken away from those 19 men, but all the people of God who were there that day and afterwards for the next 10 months, we came home to take back what was rightfully ours and to sanctify this sacred ground. I want to take a, a detour. When you first went to Ground Zero, you read about going to St. Francis and grabbing holy water and brass knuckles. What was that about? Well, when I first uh, discovered uh, about the attack, uh, I felt I probably needed down there. So I went into my room uh, and got a, a vial of holy water. Then I remembered that there might be some... Uh, there might be some tensions down there. I'm not sure any other surprise attacks. So I went into my uh, into my locker and got out a gift that uh, a Puerto Rican family gave it to me in the South Bronx for my 30th birthday. It was a pair of brass knuckles. Because uh, violence is not a last resort of the South Bronx at the time. I wasn't sure what was going to happen, so I was going to bless the people of God with the holy water, and any of the uh, attackers were coming back. I was going to you know, give them a little retaliation with the brass knuckles. You know, and if you think about it now, in those first days and weeks, there was an uncertainty of what might happen next. 
We weren't sure if they were going to follow through with another attack. We heard about a poison gas attack. We heard some other toxic going on, a matter of a dirty bomb. There was a lot of stuff going on in the imagination, and I'm trying to ask people to calm down. I believe this is it. I don't think, I don't think we're going to suffer anymore. And well, let's, let's take control of our mind and our senses. And but one thing I always told the people a lot is be kind with your mind, uh, be smart with your heart, and console your soul. Be kind with your mind, be smart with your heart, console your soul, and let God uh, help us and heal us. You have the blessing at the Ground Zero Cross. How frequently did you have Mass, and what kind of attendance did you have there? We began the Mass uh, officially on uh, September 30th, and we have permission. I was the only one allowed to have a religious service on site uh, through the mayor's office and to the Port Authority. And 10.30 we chose because that was around the, the time when the second tower went down, exactly 10.28. Uh, we started with about 25 people, and up to the, and to the last mass was over 400 people. And the, the, probably the most significant mass—they're all significant—but most was the Mother's Day mass, is when all the mothers who lost their children, or their grandchildren, or their husbands, or whatever, uh, at the the Our Father, at the Kiss of Peace, uh, a bunch of uh, members of the Special Forces, the Green Berets, were about to be deployed to go to Afghanistan, came upon us. And I asked him, I said, soldiers, if you wonder why what you're fighting for, look in the eyes of these mothers who lost their children, their husbands, their grandchildren, and, and mothers. If you want to give blessings, and I, I give you blessings upon these brave soldiers who are about to fight for our freedom of Afghanistan. It was the longest kiss of peace of any mass I've ever seen in all my life, and it was the most emotionally uh, charged and, and, and deeply satisfying to see the love. People, complete strangers, embracing and kissing each other. Uh, I'll never forget that as long as I live. And just describe that interaction. You've got these soldiers and you have these mothers and grandmothers and fathers and daughters and sons. What was that like? Well, it was Mother's Day and Mother's Day is supposed to be a happy occasion and it was a very somber occasion at the beginning because of the loss of life. The people who expect to be home to celebrate Mother's Day with them were no longer alive. And I don't want to make it such a just a sad, somber occasion, although it went that way, but this is where I think God had something handed it. I think he sent those special forces because they want to know what they were fighting for. And they got that inspiration from those mothers, daughters, fathers you mentioned. And these mothers needed some purposes that these were, these men who went to, were around the same age of their sons or their, their grandsons going out there. And so this is more like these are the surrogate sons, the surrogate grandsons who are going off to war, and they give them support and love as they did to the ones who fell in 9-11. You touched upon, but it seems like the whole theme or the whole point was this symbol had meaning to so many people. What was it about the symbol? What did they look for? What did they derive from it? Well, as you know, uh, Peter, that uh, this tragedy wasn't just an American tragedy. There were 80 other nations who lost loved ones, uh, going from Australia, from Russia, Great Britain, Mexico, uh, Nigeria, Kenya, Brazil. And people from uh, the metropolitan area and people around the country we're going to find consolation and comfort for the presence uh, of this cross. 
They realized there's something holy. This was sanctified ground. It wasn't uh, just a crime scene. There was something holy about that cross that gave meaning and purpose. And also to, it gave purpose for the recovery workers, for the police officers, firefighters, and union construction workers who were working there, and the Salvation Army, who were great volunteers. They found meaning and purpose. You heard from a Victor Frankl had, you know, in search of meaning, what happened because of regards to the Holocaust. There were certain physical sites they had that give meaning and purpose. And this particular Ground Zero Cross gave meaning and purpose and consolation for people, not in our country, but around the world. And what I thought was interesting is he described the fact that this was not just for Catholics and Christians. This is for, we had... This was not Catholic only Mass. We had Protestants, we had Jewish people, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs at the Mass. We even had atheists who attended the Mass. And I was going to ask them, the Catholic and I would invite distributed communion, whether they believed in the Catholic Church was immaterial. This was a man of, of bonding with people, showing a sense of community, understanding, and purpose. So many religious faith traditions uh, were present for the Masses. Many multiple religious traditions found purpose. They understood. If we founded a, a Star David on site, we would have it up there. If we found uh, a, a, a crescent, we would have it up there. But we found an interpreter to be a cross. And for me, it was, it, was, it was America's cross, and not just for any particular religious tradition. In 2006, October 5th, it gets moved to St. Peter's Church, which is down the block. Why the move, and what was that? ceremony like? Well, originally, the Port Authority, uh, who was in charge of the site, they, uh, they, they had a, a practice to remove all precious uh, items or artifacts into a hangar in a, a JFK airport. And the union construction workers, like, we found out about this, there was a room that the, the cross might be moved there. And through Ed Malloy, who was the, the leader of the building trades, where, where that symbol right here, we uh, met with the Port Authority, and well, we simply told them, if you try to move the cross off-site, we will shut down the site. We will shut down, walk off the site, and there will be no progress made on the site. The Port Authority uh, convened among themselves. They decided to have a, uh, a compromise that will move the, the cross uh, from the site to like a exactly a block away on the side of St. Uh, Peter's Church. And St. Peter's Church is historic in the it was the first uh, house of worship that responded, that being a temporary morgue where we put the bodies of Father Michael Judge, uh, Pete Gancy, Bill Feehan, and other those who had died there. Uh, we're so grateful for St. Peter's Church for their wonderful work from day one and for showing hospitality for having the cross be on the side of the church for over five years. Was that a good spot? I know you wanted it to stay there. I thought it was a wonderful spot. I thought people were praying there. This is a, the, the oldest Catholic church in the Archdiocese of New York. It was there visible. Uh, people could see it from all walks of life. I thought it was a, the perfect place to be, but I guess it wasn't meant to be for a variety of reasons, but so be. It's in the 9-11 Museum now. What is your sense, what you're feeling about where it is and how it represents what you want it to represent? Uh, I can't say enough uh, goodness about the executive director, Alice Greenwald. Alice Greenwald was the founder of the United States Holocaust Museum down in Washington, D.C. She has amazing sensitivity, competency, and vision. Uh, she heard me out about my concerns about the cross, and so I am very grateful for Alice Greenwald 
for her uh, wonderful uh, competency, her leadership, and uh, sense of community regards this cross. I know one of the reasons you said you wanted to write the book was to pay tribute to those who advocated for it. Tell us about some of those people. The, the book is uh, really developed in, into three groups, and the first and foremost is the uh, union construction workers who are 80% of the workforce down there. And uh, I don't think they get enough recognition of what they've done uh, down there. In the recovery period, they, uh, they clean up the site and demolition with under budget and under time. And Ed, Edward J. Malloy is the microcosm of that person for the union construction workers. The second group is the uh, New York City Police Department, uh, the Fire Department of New York, Office of Emergency Management, and the Port Authority of Police, uh, who did wonderful work down there. And the microcosm of them is my good friend Richard Shearer, who is of the Jewish faith, but he's one of the, one of the biggest supporters of the, the cross down there. And uh, both he and Ed died uh, in the same year, in, in 2012, uh, when the, when the cross was yet to be uh, was officially in the in museum, but they fought for it. And no matter, last but not least, with a bunch of family members uh, of uh, of the victims who really wanted the cross to stay on site, and the microcosm for that person was uh, Jane Palacino, who collected five thousand signatures. So it's dedicated to these wonderful three groups of people. If someone is interested in the book, the Ground Zero Cross, how can they get it? They could. Uh, Go on to Amazon or .com, but I ask in any nonprofit group or any uh, house of worship, uh, you want to get uh, multiple books, uh, please contact me uh, at the following email address, groundzerocross at gmail.com. Repeat, groundzerocross at gmail.com, and we'll arrange not only for a discount, but the distribution of books uh, that you require. Father Brian, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. In her book, Careers for Women, author Joanna Scott turns a little-known New York City public figure into a central character. That person is Lee Jaffe, the former head of the Port Authority's Public Relations Department and the woman who encouraged the entity to build the world's biggest building. Her idea would eventually become the Twin Towers. I spoke with Joanna about her novel. So I can't do justice and describe the story that you've written. Can you tell me in your own words what your book is about? It begins with a gathering organized by a woman named Lee Jaffe, who in the 1950s and 60s was a powerhouse female executive uh, who worked for the Port Authority of New York. So in this opening scene, she gathers her secretaries, the clerical girls, she calls them. And she she is giving them advice about careers for women, hence the title of the novel, Careers for Women. She uh, warns the young woman about some of the obstacles they will face and then uh, offers herself as a model of success. From there, the book dives into both the past and the future of that gathering. I move around in time. I explore the lives of a couple of the young women who works for Lee Jaffe. They're, the narrator of the book, her name is Maggie Gleason, she uh, becomes friends with another young woman who works for, who's taken under Lee Jaffe's wing named Pauline Moreau. Maggie 
discovers that Pauline Moreau has a deep, dark secret. Things get complicated in Pauline's life. Maggie takes charge of her young daughter, and then Pauline disappears. And the book sets out to solve the mystery of Pauline's disappearance. At the same time, it is following the the business life that uh, is generated by the weirdly the Port Authority of New York. Um, they were involved. They were responsible for building the World Trade Towers. And a little interesting footnote about Lee Jaffe. She's an actual historical figure. She was the one who came up with the idea to build the tallest building in the world to house the World Trade Towers. And so I thought that was an important thing to consider as I explored her life and the lives of the fictional characters around her. And I found it so interesting that you chose to make Lee Jaffe one of your characters, as you mentioned, a real life person. How did you come? Mm -hmm. How did you stumble upon her story and why did you want to include her? Well, it's kind of hard to come upon her story. She's she's pretty much forgotten by history. I had saved a bunch of newspapers from the fall of 2001 surrounding the um, tragedy of 9-11. And I, a couple of years ago, I just decided to, to go to this bag of old newspapers, actual copies of the uh, New York Times and some other newspapers. And I... Not sure exactly what I was searching for. I was just thinking, uh, I was trying to remember what it felt like in that fall and and uh, see, looking for uh, smaller stories that came out of the those months. And I, I saw a mention of, uh, one thing led to another, but I, I saw a mention of Lee Jaffe and I became very curious about her. You know, who was this woman who penned a memo, who, uh, in some ways, changed the course of history by, uh, you know, opening up the possibility of this huge, huge building that then became two Twin Towers. Um, so it was almost by accident that I came upon her. But then, you know, something about her that there's not a mu- there's not much written about her, uh, and so I had to make a fair amount up to tell you the truth. <laughs> um, but she, she just a, her her forgotten importance, I think, was the, the thing that became the the motivation for me to explore further and and see if I could create a story surrounding her that was fictional. Lee Jaffe's story is interesting too. At a time when we're now just learning about contributions that women may have made in all these men-driven fields that were kind of brushed under the carpet and set aside. That's right. That's right. Interestingly, I learned that Virginia Woolf once uh, planned a book, and she called it Professions for Women. She wanted to think just about this. She was had given a talk to a group of women who were working and and she was thinking about how the identity of woman would change as uh, gender equality. Uh, she said something about how 
we can't really know what women can do until they have access to every field available, open to human skill. Uh, she never wrote that book, Professions for Women. So in some ways, I wanted to pick up where she left off, <laughs> if that's possible, <laughs> if that's allowed. <laughs> you have this mystery that you've set up. And there's mm-hmm. also the story about women and the the obstacles that they face in life and in careers. Mm-hmm. And there also seems mm-hmm. to be this lesson in greed and how far the mighty can fall. Should we draw mm-hmm. a similarity between this fire that you have in Visby and then the destruction of the Twin Towers on 9-11? Uh, you're not the first one to offer that as a possibility. As an author, I'm always hesitant to solve any equation. You know, I'd like to put the possibilities in the fiction and uh, ask readers to consider without uh, preparing them with conclusions of my own. So I think that's a really interesting possibility. Uh, I was thinking a lot about the just the human urge to build. It, it's unstoppable. We're going to build. It's a wonderful, glorious thing to want to build. But it also creates problems in the world, and and I wanted to explore those problems. So I ended up thinking about how a rural community becomes tied up with the construction of the World Trade Towers, and that rural community in the novel is the St. Lawrence River Valley up near Canada, far North New York State, they have a, a creative fictional corporation. I call it Illumicor. They produce the aluminum that then goes into the World Trade Towers. So the connection between the rural community, the economics, the people, the personal lives. In fact, that's where my attention goes. The, the connections between the personal lives of the those in the rural community and those in the urban community. See how. Uh, those play out um, something I wanted to follow and really get readers thinking about how important it is to remember these connections that bind us as Americans. What do you hope readers take away from your book? I think I, as a writer, one of the things I, I most long for is that the, the experience I seek as a reader when I'm I'm involved, absorbed by the best books. I I want to I want to absorb readers, but I want them to come away with a sense of heightened possibility, of, of imagination that's perhaps lit up a little bit more, a uh, sense of their own uh, creative powers. Um, that's pretty broad uh, description of what I'm after as a writer, perhaps, can account for my, my motivations for any book. Uh, for this book in particular, I was thinking a lot about what it meant to be a woman in the 50s and 60s in this country, I was thinking a lot, to be honest, about the pretty significant backlash we're experiencing in 
this period of our country's life. Uh, so I, I guess I'd want people to think in particular about the hurt that can be generated by misconceptions regarding gender or uh, problems of inequality. Uh, I think I want people to consider, as I was saying earlier, this, these important connections between different economies, uh, those in, in urban community. It's really important to, to think of where all the materials come from that we use to build these gorgeous, magnificent buildings. So those are, those are a few things, some more general, some more specific, I guess. Well, Joanna Scott, author of Careers for Women, thank you for taking the time out of your day today to talk to us. Well, thank you for giving me a chance. The week-long Brooklyn Book Festival gets underway Monday, September 11th. Co-producer Carolyn Greer tells us what to expect. So they can expect a full week-long literary love fest. And uh, September 11th through 17th, we have bookends uh, with all sorts of special literary events all over the city. And then on the 16th, we have the Children's Day, so families can come and enjoy time together. Uh, And then on the 17th, it is our big festival day. And that's where we have 300 authors from 20-some countries and all over the United States on 14 stages. Um, it's, like I said, a literary love fest. And you really do have something from everyone, for kids, for teens, for adults. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, we we have graphic novelists coming. We have YA, which are the young adults. We have children, children at the Children's Day. That is, that is the Saturday the 16th. And that is uh, a day that is just for the little ones, like one-year-olds till 10, 11. And uh, there's everything from, you know, art to do with the illustrators to uh, listening to some of the favorite and best-selling children's authors. But at the festival day, if you are sort of an international person, we do have uh, authors coming from all over the world and speaking. And, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I, I can't think of a subject. If you are into poetry, we have poets. You know, nonfiction, we can, um, you know, satisfy a lot of different interest on topics of the day with that. Um, so, yeah, there is there is something for everyone and every level. We we try and mix it up and have these uh, fabulous, new, wonderful, young, emerging authors. And we put them all often with the iconic authors, um, you know, a Joyce Carol Oates and a Siri Hustavit and Pete Hamill, some of those kind of people will be with people with their first debut book sometimes on a program. It, it really kind of is a lot of fun that way. And your subject matters and your authors, it's not just central to Brooklyn. Brooklyn happens to be where all this is happening, right? Right. Brooklyn is our, our home base, and we're really proud to have it here in where there's you know a history of, of so many authors. But literally, this uh, we, we have attendees come from around the tri-state area. And um, our subject matters would be way outside of the scope of anything that is just Brooklyn, Um, although Brooklyn people certainly have wide and varying interests and will all love it, too. 
And as a co-producer of this event, you're pretty integral in choosing what's going to be happening. Do you have a favorite part? Is there something you're looking most forward to this year? (laughs) You know, um, I come from a large family, and so that's what my mother would call choosing between the children. (laughs) Um, We... (laughs) I, you know, I love so many of them, and and what we have is, is really unique is a literary council. So a lot of the major book festivals in the country and the world have a hired literary director who really puts their imprint on the shape of all programs, and instead we have a literary council of 20-some literary uh, publishing professionals, and then we have committees so that there is a nonfiction committee and a fiction committee and a poetry and a graphic novelist committee. And these people get together and volunteer their time all year to review books and to hammer out, you know, who will be the, the, the ones chosen to be presented each year. So um, I have a lot of things that personally interest me, and I, I, I personally co-chair both um, the nonfiction committee and the bookends, the things that we do all week. So I take a role, and, and Liz Koch, the co-producer, she uh, co-chairs and uh, the international committee, and she sits on the children's committee. Johnny Temple, our, our um, Lit Council president, who uh, joins all these other wonderful volunteers, he sits with fiction. And so it's this huge hive of people that all love all things literary who come together and, and pick and choose these authors and find them. Now, hopefully, we've whetted some people's appetites. Where can they go for more information? Well, the best place to go is brooklynbookfestival.org. And that's the best place. We have the entire list of 60-some bookends all over the city. And you can do it by day and find out what's happening each day of the week. And then the children's, you can see what's on each stage. And for the festival day, you can look at all the 14 stages by the hour and see who's going to be there. And I guess the best part is this is all free, isn't it? It is all free. You know, the festival day, the children's day, all of that is 100% free. And and, um, bookends that happen all over the city, some of those have small charges. We work with different people and and a bookend may be in a, a bar or it may be uh, in, um, well, we actually have a bookend in the cemetery this year in Greenwood Cemetery. Um, they're all over places. And I would say that something like 85% of those are free too, but a few have some nominal charges. Like if you go into a restaurant and have an author speaking and a whole menu of food that you get to eat and everything, they'll have a charge. So there's that. But our big festival day and our children's day are 100% free. And um, and that's just sort of a, you know, something we're committed to doing. We want to make it so everybody can come out and enjoy it. Well, Carolyn, thank you for taking some time to tell us about this great event and good luck. Okay. I would like to say one quick thing, and that is that uh, we do have people from, um, we have uh, two Pulitzer winners that are both happen to be Brooklynites this year, Colson Whitehead and Lynn Nottage in conversation. And we think uh, that's pretty special. But also we have some nonfiction programs that are about writing about music and cultural appropriation, a whole conversation about um, how uh, music takes on different uh diversities and sometimes appropriates and sometimes celebrates. And, and there's a whole conversation in the music world. So I thought maybe your people might be interested in that, especially. And once again, people can go to brooklynbookfestival.org to find out when that would be happening. 
Absolutely. And, you know, thank you so much for helping promote this. And we hope everybody will come out. And, you know, the uh, the other thing is we have a, a literary marketplace. I shouldn't neglect to say that there will be 200 publishers, small and large, having books that you'll never find in ordinary stores and then also indie bookstores. There's a huge marketplace. If you don't want to just sit and listen, you can also just mill around and explore that. That's our show for this week. Get in touch and email us at books at WCBS880.com. And you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books.